Wilson Bentley loved snow. The Vermont farm boy enjoyed the blanket of white that covered the ground, but really it was the individual snowflake that fascinated him most. At 15, when the flurries began to fall, he would rush outside with a frozen piece of slate and catch a snowflake and then briefly study it under the microscope. And after much experimentation, he captured the first image of a snowflake crystal on film in 1885. He was only 20 years old at the time. He soon became known by his nickname, Snowflake, and so for the next almost 50 years of his life, pursued his dream, amassing over 5,000 photographs of snowflakes, nearly half of which were published in 1931 in his one and only book, Snow Crystals. And it was his one and only book because in December of that year, 1931, Bentley died of pneumonia that he contracted by spending six hours in a snowstorm collecting different samples. Before his death, six years before his death, he, he wrote this. Under the microscope, I found that snowflakes were miracles of beauty. And it seemed a shame that this beauty should be seen and appreciate, should not be seen by, and, and appreciated by others. Every crystal was a masterpiece of design, and no one design was ever repeated. When a snowflake melted, that design was forever lost. Now, Wilson Bentley was singularly devoted to the study of snowflakes and made some amazing discoveries. You probably have heard no two snowflakes are exactly alike. Well, it was Wilson Bentley who first proposed that theory. I think we can appreciate the diligence and devotion exhibited by this man in his study of crystals that fall from the sky. But I got to tell you, folks, I got to tell you, when I die, I want my life to count for something more than snow crystals. Bentley did, however, in that quote, capture the essence of this morning's sermon. If you'll let me paraphrase just a part of it, listen again. Every human being is a masterpiece of design, and no one design is ever repeated. When he or she leaves this world, that design is forever lost. Now, God is certainly the creator of snow. In the book of Job, Elihu makes this observation in Job chapter 37. He says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men he has made may know his work. God loves snow, created snow, but his heart doesn't beat for snow. His heart beats and longs for us, the crown of his creation. And that brings us to this incredible mini-autobiography of God in Luke chapter 15 this morning. Now, I want you to go home and read Luke chapter 15 later on. I want to tell you the story this morning rather than just read you the story. But before we launch in, you need to know something about this story and about the way the Hebrew mind worked. When a word or a phrase or a thought is repeated three times or more in Scripture... It's like an alarm. When you got a single passage and something happens to you, it's like an alarm going off and the Hebrew mind says, oh, wait a minute, oh, this is important. I better listen. I better get this. Okay? It's sort of like what happened in Isaiah and Revelation. Both of those passages, we find these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That, that three times holy makes the mind stop and say, wow, 
God is something extraordinarily special. Or God's warning to King Zedekiah and the promise of the coming Messiah in Ezekiel 21. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. Now that's the reference to the Messiah spoken to a failed kingship. In Amos chapter 4, five times in five verses, God lays out everything he did for the people, and then he ends the verse by saying, yet you did not return to me. You can't read Amos chapter 4 without understanding what God's expectation was that his people would return to him, which brings us to this passage in Luke 15. It should come then as no surprise to any of us That God, when he writes his mini autobiography, he would tell the same story in three different ways so that the Hebrew mind, listening to him tell it, would wake up and say, whoa, I can't miss this. This is important. The text, as I said, is Luke 15. The occasion is an indictment against Jesus. The religious leaders have accused him of welcoming and eating with sinners. This, then, is the Lord's response, an autobiographical glimpse into his heart. Now, you already know the narratives, but do you realize that it is just one story, not three? Narrative number one, the introduction. A man has a hundred sheep, but one has gone missing. Probably a lamb got separated from the flock. So the shepherd secures the 99 in the fold who are still safely with him, but does not sleep, does not stop searching until he finds that one missing sheep and brings it home. And he doesn't bring it home on a leash, mind you. He carries it home on his shoulders and then throws a party to celebrate the find. Narrative number two, supporting material. A woman has 10 silver coins representing 10 days' wages. One silver coin, one day's wage. But she loses one, a whole day's wage. She lights her lamp, she grabs her broom, she turns the house inside out looking for the missing silver coin. And when she finds it, she gathers her neighbors together so she can share her good fortune and then asks them to celebrate with her because that which was lost, she has found. Narrative three. The climax. A young man grows restless working for his dad on the family farm. He has better things to do, places to go, people to meet. And so, in a rather crass move, he asks his healthy father, who isn't even close to death, for his share of the estate, as if any of us are owed an inheritance. His rationale? He just wants to enjoy life. And the gracious father did just that, gave him his portion of the estate. The son packs his bags and leaves town, certain that he'll never see this part of the country again. And in a distant land, he sets off on a new adventure with his new found wealth. However, the young man who undoubtedly had never attended Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University squandered his unearned wealth and discovered that when you no longer have money, you no longer have any friends. The only job he could find, are you ready for this, was back on a farm where everything had started. 
Only this time, not as the master's son, but as a lowly hired hand. And then Jesus comes to the part in the narrative that would have made every Jewish mother in the crowd swoon with panic. And he ended up feeding the pigs. Finally, when he realized the pigs were eating better than he was, he came to his senses and determined to go home. He reasoned that since the hired hands on his father's farm were treated better than he had been treated, he would return empty-handed but remorseful, hoping that his dad, out of some sense of sentimentality, would accept him back and make him a lowly hired hand. After all, that would be better than sharing a meal with Porky in the pen. But the young man, the young man didn't know that every day since he had left home, his father had been watching and waiting. Craning his neck to peer down the dusty lane, the father never lost hope that his son would return. That's why he saw the lad coming before the son saw the father coming. He didn't wait scowling on the front porch for the son to make his way up the road. Nor did he send a farmhand with clean clothes so that he would at least look presentable when they saw each other for the first time face to face. No, not this father. He ran. Something else, by the way, that would have made Jesus' audience gasp. Because you see, no dignified Jewish man would have been found running to meet an offspring. Protocol suggested just the opposite. The kids run home to the father. The father does not run home to greet the kids. But this father didn't care about protocol. He just cared about his boy. He threw his arms around the filthy clothes. He planted a, key, a kiss on grimy cheeks. The boy started into his well-rehearsed speech in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's as if the father was deaf or that the son was speaking gibberish. The words were ignored and the father's actions now take center stage. Dad calls for the best robe to be brought. It might have been the father's own robe. Or it might have been a new robe that was reserved for an act of hospitality for a visiting guest. Or it might have been the son's old robe, cleaned and pressed, just waiting for him to come home. You take your pick. The story is the same either way. Then the father places a ring on his finger, a signet ring, a sign of authority. This boy was no hireling. This was the boss's son. The father puts sandals on his feet. The father looked at the bare feet, the sign of slavery, and placed sandals there to declare that this man was free. And then the celebration. Dad killed the fattened calf. Now what we often miss and overlook in this is, is, is this simple truth. This would have been way too big of a meal for a family gathering. You don't kill the fattened calf and, and consume it all in one meal as just a family. No, no, no. This was going to be a party of immense proportions. The whole community was going to be invited to this feast. You see, one might think that a father under these circumstances would sort of let the boy in and, and slowly let him acclimate back out into society so that, you know, he just kind of eased back in and nobody really notices. Oh, not this father. This father wanted the whole world to know that his son who had been lost had been found again, that this one who had been so far away had now come home. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall in the place where Jesus told this story as only Jesus could tell this story. Who could argue with such grand logic? 
Who could resist such overwhelming compassion? Who could hear this story of God's heart and remain indifferent or apathetic or careless? This was God's many autobiography. This was a glimpse at the Lord's EKG. So what is it out of this story that we can learn and take home with us today? Well, let me, let's, let's see if we can go through it this way real quick. There's a problem in every story. Something valuable was lost. Some might think that a lost sheep, especially a lamb, was not worth all the effort. After all, you have 99 sheep that are safe and healthy and they're in the fold, but you're going to leave the fold in search of the one lost one and put them at risk. After all, that lamb probably is already dead or killed by a wild animal, maybe captured by somebody else. You're going to waste all that time and energy looking. Doesn't seem like a good thing to do. Or that silver coin, it was... It's only one day's wages. I mean, after all, you still got nine left in your purse. What, what if the woman wasted more than a whole day looking for the coin? Why, she could have taken that day, gone out, and earned the money to replace the coin that she lost in the first place. And that boy, oh, come on. What parent would be so fixated on such an insolent child? Why, if that had been my child, it would have been a cold day in August before I would have treated him like a part of the family again. But you're missing the point, if that's what you think. Value, value is in the eyes of the beholder. You see, when you know every sheep by name, and every sheep knows your voice, no sheep is expendable. And I don't know about you, but I'd turn the house upside down looking for a whole day's wages. And if you're a parent, you never stop loving the wayward child or hoping that he or she will come home. God is trying to communicate here that every human being matters. That God does not look at one's earthly pedigree and assign a value statement. Oh, this guy, well, he, he's important. This guy, not so much. The house of royalty is no more important than the homeless. In God's sight, there is no caste system. The least appreciated person in society is as important to God as the most celebrated person in society. God is simply communicating that lost people, people that are far from him, matter to him. They are his heartbeat. And here's the bottom line for us. We are his family. If they matter to the Father, they ought to matter to us. There's a second thing out of that story, and that is there is a reaction to the lost, and that is an all-out search. Jesus said at the end of the story of Zacchaeus, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That is an all-out search. If the Lord left heaven to seek for those who are far from God, then it stands to reason he wants us to do the same. I mean, isn't that exactly what he told us before he left, right before he left this world? He says, as you're going, make disciples of all nations. You will be my witnesses to the very end of the world. The mission of the church is to conduct an all-out search for those who are far from God. 
Now, I've already mentioned that I'm really excited about this One Life initiative. And you say, okay, please just tell me what One Life is. All right, here you go. The purpose of One Life is to inspire, equip, and mobilize every believer at Sherwood Oaks to a lifestyle of effective spiritual influence. You see, our mission here at Sherwood Oaks Christian Church is simple. We are people helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. One of the things that we hold dear as a value is that we are to think like everyday missionaries. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Uh, here it comes. It's the guilt trip for not bringing more people to church. Oh, just please put that away. Take your good old Southern Indiana guilt and set it on a shelf for just a minute. And let me tell you what I'm talking about here, all right? This is not about what we've done wrong. It's about what we're going to do right. It's not a test about past neglect. It's about tools for future success. You see, I'm never impressed when somebody tells me I've got to do something, but then doesn't tell me how to do it. That doesn't make much sense to me. One Life is a strategic tool that helps all of us live out our mission and value in a non-threatening, highly relational way. Some of you are saying, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about personal evangelism, aren't you? No, no, no. By the way, evangelism is a good word in the scripture. The word evangelism comes from the same word as gospel. All right, and it simply means share good news. Who doesn't want to share good news? The problem is that in our culture today, the way the word evangelism is used, it carries a whole lot of nasty baggage with it. If you hear the word personal evangelist, what, what comes to your mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind. It's somebody walking up my, my, my walking up my front steps carrying a 20-pound family Bible who starts asking me hard questions about eternity that if I can't answer, I get whopped upside the head with the 20-pound family Bible. Uh, isn't that what you think of when you think of a personal evangelist? I don't like that image. That's not a biblical image whatsoever. I really like this contrast chart that Sean Green developed. If you take a contrast between what our concept of is personal evangelism and what spiritual influence is it, it's pretty neat. Look at it. Personal evangelism isn't personal. It's impersonal. Spiritual influence is very personal. Personal evangelism encounters strangers. Spiritual influence engages friends. Personal evangelism is doing most of the talking. Spiritual influence is doing most of the listening. A personal evangelist has to answer tough questions. But a spiritual influencer is one that is asking most of the questions. Personal evangelism, that, that person wants to be understood. But the person who is wielding spiritual influence wants to understand who the other person is and what makes them tick. A personal evangelism moment is a one-way presentation. But a spiritual influence moment is a two-way conversation. See the difference? And I'm here to tell you that the spiritual influence side is what Jesus was talking about and pattering in Scripture. One life is about being a spiritual influencer in somebody's life by, number one, developing a friendship. That's pretty simple. Develop a friendship with somebody that's far away from God. 
okay? That's, that's going to search for the one that's lost, not the 99 that are still behind. Number two, it's discovering their story. Ask them questions. Learn about who, who among us doesn't like to tell our own story, right? Everyone wants a chance to share their story. Just learn how to listen and then discern what's next. Ask God, Lord, how, how can I be used in this person's life to encourage them? We call it the 3D1 process. Three Ds, develop friendships, discover stories, discern next steps, and the one stands for one life. And over these next few weeks, we're gonna talk about why this is important, and then afterwards, we're gonna have a couple classes, simple classes, but they're gonna even take us farther into this so that we will have all the tools to do what we need to do. To be who we need to be is really what it is. Now folks, this is not some new fad or making someone a project. This, all right, I want you to take a look at these pictures. That's a guy building a birdhouse. There's a guy painting a landscape scene and there's a guy putting cabinets in a kitchen. Those are projects, okay? What I'm talking about are building relationships. That is a, that's an altogether different concept. That's a different picture. It is about building relationships to show others that God loves them more than anything, that he is passionately wanting them to find the same hope and salvation that we have found through Christ. It's about earning the right to share the life-giving message of Jesus that everyone, everyone is welcome into the kingdom of God. Now, we cannot afford to miss this opportunity. We cannot miss this opportunity. Y'all remember Blockbuster? Okay. At their peak in 2004, Blockbuster had 60,000 employees, 9,000 stores worldwide, and an annual revenue stream of $5.9 billion. At the time, 2004, only 4% of American homes had broadband connection. Now, in six years, by 2010, that number would rocket from 4% to 68%. And the climate, of course, was changing. In that same year, 2010, Blockbuster filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. But it needn't have happened. A decade before, in 2000, Blockbuster had the chance to buy a smaller company called Netflix. For $50 million. And you say, oh, that's a lot of money. That was three days income for Blockbuster. That was a song. And they declined. Today, Netflix stands at more than $33 billion in value. Which is more than CBS Network. Oh, what a missed opportunity. Can I tell you something this morning? As valuable as Netflix is, it cannot begin to compare to the value of a human soul. Nothing, nothing, nothing is more valuable than a human soul. Now, most stories end here. There is no opportunity to grab. Most stories end with something is lost and then something is found. But God's story doesn't end here. It doesn't end with the find. It ends with an unexpected response, which brings us to the last thing that we see in this story, and that is an extravagant party is thrown. The response is an extravagant party. I like a good party. And God has one planned in eternity that I, boy, I don't want to miss. 
but as a matter of fact, I, I think, I think there is probably a party every day in heaven because Jesus said the angels rejoice more over the one sinner who comes home than all the rest that are still safely in the fold. And since there are people that come to Christ every day, there's a party in heaven every day celebrating those who are coming home. This really is God's heartbeat. Gary Poole writes this, he said, God's heart beats for those who are far from him. And as a loving father, he's waiting for them to return home. The lost matter to God. They are worth finding and celebrating. Every person is someone Jesus died for and God wants to use each of us in his plan to lead them back home. When the Lord sees us finally dragging our sin-weary souls up the road, he doesn't stand with arms crossed and brow furled just waiting to give us what for when we reach the front steps. Oh, no. He picks up the hem of his robe and joyfully runs to meet us. God the Father does not stand on etiquette. He dashes down the road because he can't wait to welcome us home. I don't know about you, but that's overwhelming to me. That the God of the universe, who spoke the universe into being, to, who spun every galaxy into place, who the Bible says knows every star by name, runs to welcome us home. So who do you know this morning that's still stuck in a far distant land? Longing to find his or her way home. And if not you, who will help them find their way back? Here's how we're going to end our service this morning. You got that card in front of you? I want you to think of somebody. I hope you've been thinking about it and praying as we go through the service. Somebody that you know, that somebody's in your scope of influence. Maybe you just don't spend much time with them, but boy, would, would you love... For them to somehow, some way, find Jesus Christ. But you know that begins with a relationship. And so you're willing to build a friendship with this person. A relationship with this person. With the hope, with the prayer, with the dream that someday, whether it's months from now, or years from now, or a lifetime from now, that that friendship will open up the door that you'll be able to speak into their lives about Jesus Christ. Who might that person be? be for you. Hey, just stop and think about it for a minute. What if, what if everybody of us in this auditorium this morning found just that one person? And let's just say in the next 10 years, everybody whose one life you've been building and growing with decides to come to know Jesus. Just look around the room. Think what a change that would be in eternity. Just if we do this one thing, this one Life. I, and remember this, absolutely no one is so lost that God's grace can't find them. No one is so lost that God's grace can't find them. But God's grace needs a conduit through which to work and to build that relationship. You may just be the one God is raising up to reach someone else. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that you can spend your life chasing snowflakes if you want. Or you can invest your energy in helping others find the one who can take away their sin and make them whiter than snow. So on the top card, write the name, just the first name, 
We don't need to know the whole name. You know the whole name. God knows the whole name. Just, just write that, tear off the bottom part, put their name on the bottom part. You keep the bottom part. Take that home. But when we sing in just a second, I'm going to ask you to get out of your seats, come down here, and drop that top card in one of these four black boxes. It, it, it's your way of saying, I'm making a commitment to build a relationship with this person so that God may bring them home. Can you do that? And if you say, it's too soon. I, I can't think of a person right now. Just put a question mark on there and take the other part home and pray about it and then bring it back the next time. All right, because we're, we're not done with these cards. We're going to do some things with these cards this week. And the first thing we're going to do is pray over these cards because who knows how God will use this moment. While we stand and while we sing, you drop your card in. I'll be over here under the cross. If you've got a question about your salvation, you just come over there. But the rest of you, come, drop your card in the box. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.